Okay, well grab your Bibles if you will, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 22, verses 23 through 34. And stand with me if, you, if you're able, we're going to read those verses together. And just as, as a reminder, the reason why we do this is so that we can make sure that we know this is what needs to be glorified and honored above all things is the Word of God. This is what, this is our authority. This is what, what governs our lives. This is what directs us. Um, and so we, we want to make sure that this is elevated above all things. So here we go. Chapter 22, chapter 22, verses 24 through, sorry, 23 through, um, 34. So they began to argue amongst themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it, which means betray him, because we're trying to follow up from the passage before. Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. But it is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever lead like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one who is serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom." And you will sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But, actually, I'll read that again in the the Texas way. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift y'all like wheat. But I have prayed for y'all, that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told them, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. (laughs) <laughs> I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not cr- will crow today until you deny me three times that you know me. Lord Jesus, we pray right now that you would open up your word to us. Lord, open up our hearts to receive. Open up our spirits to connect with your word to your Holy Spirit. Lord, give, give us your Holy Spirit to understand your heart behind what you spoke this night. We pray that you'd lead us and you'd guide us to how to, to see this played out in our lives today. Lord, for us to encounter how this launched the kingdom way in our lives today. And Lord, we just pray that you would bless us as we read your word and as we talk about it here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. <coughs> so, I've entitled my sermon this morning, Love First, love first, because this today we see, I mean, left and right, pastors, worship leaders, and people in positions of authority, and just Christians themselves in Christian circles seem to be dropping like flies, seem to be leaving the church in droves. Um, the, you know, this, I mean, why are they, and why are they leaving? You know, talk about pastors specifically. They're, you know, retiring or they're resigning. They're just, uh, or they're being fired, right? There's a lot, there's, there's several different, there's people leaving in droves. I mean, even before this, we talked about in our statistics that 1,400 pastors per month 
were leaving the pastoral, most of which to never return. And I've talked to, it seems like, I posted this a few weeks back, but it seems like I've been talking to more and more former pastors. Pastors that got burnt out. Pastors that got pushed out. Pastors that got fired. Or pastors that just simply gave up. Pastors that got in and were like, ah, I'm out. Right? They just resigned or they retired early. <laughs> or they were fired. Well, you know, maybe talk about reasons. Why were they being, why are they retiring or resigning or being fired? Well, maybe moral failure. I mean, it seems like every week we're turning on the television and we're hearing about another pastor or another worship leader or another senior church leader in some ministry that is falling morally, having an affair, cheating people out of money. There seems to be more and more of these things happening in our lives. Or maybe, like I said, financial failure. Maybe they're mishandling of the finances. Um, Burnout. And this is something that I talked about in Theology Pub a while back, but, but burnout doesn't come from a workload. You don't get burned out because you have a lot of work going on. You have a lot of, you burn out because of anxiety. It doesn't matter what the workload is. If your work environment or your life environment has a ton of stress on it, it will be a very short time until you burn out. Until you, and fatigue and just crash and burn. Maybe have a mental breakdown. You know, people, you know, people's families fall apart because they just fill their lives with anxiety, fill their lives with stress. It's not so much even doing too much. It's, it's that the things that you're doing, whether there's a, a lot or even small, are causing your life and your family great anxiety and great stress. And you will burn out. It's just a matter of time. Now, why are people leaving the church in droves and pastors giving up? What is leading this as, as they as they talk about this trend of deconstruction? You know, there's a, it's a very trendy hashtag hashtag deconstruction, you know, or exvangelical. It's like they're leaving the church, and it's almost like this badge of honor. I'm an exvangelical. I'm leaving Christendom. It's, it's weird, but what is leading this? And here here's my here's my belief. Here's my my opinion. People are not experiencing the embodiment of the power and the beauty of the bride of Christ. That's it. People are not experiencing the power of the presence of God and the beauty of the presence of God amongst the people of God. People are not seeing Jesus. They see a communal... um, and relationship-driven faith in Scripture, yet they don't experience that in the church. Overall, this is general. We're not talking about like specifically our church, because actually, I believe that we're doing pretty good in this area. For the you know, overall, I think that there is a, an engagement that I've seen over the last four years in this in this church that I'm seeing the I get it. I like to call it the the get it. I understand it. I'm, I'm engaging with it. I'm seeing that relationships matter. I'm seeing that people outside of my personal blood family matter to me and I want to engage more with them. And I'm seeing people's lives transformed. People's lives being changed for the better. And not just in this church. Like Our influence extends beyond this. I know people who have had relationships with you guys 
that are calling me and texting me and posting on Facebook talking about how they feel loved and how they feel connected with because of how you guys welcome them, how we welcome them, and how we love them. I mean, literally, like suicides being um, you know, stopped because someone gave them a phone call in this church. But I think overall in the church, this is why we're seeing this great trend of deconstruction. Because it's all about a show. It's all about a performance. It's all about a celebrity on the stage either singing or, or talking for an hour or more. And so what I mean by loving, by loving first, so this is, the, this is the point for this morning, love first. Put it down. Write it down. Tattoo it. Just kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> Before all things, we need to choose to love. That's what I mean. Before all things in this world, we need to choose to love. Who do we love? God, first and foremost. Second, one another. And we, then we ex- extend that love. After we've experienced it from God and experienced it from our, our family and from our family, we extend that to others. Because, it, because at that point it comes from a place of authenticity, a place of joy, a place of flourishing already, a place of being connected and being known. And that's where it out, like outreach comes from. It comes from a heart that is full. If your heart ain't full, you ain't going to do a good job at outreach. Or you might, but it'll be short-lived. You don't do anything from a, part of, a place of half-full. We have to be full of the love of God in order to love anyone else besides Him and ourselves. Because it's not about a holy huddle. It's not come about the church is not coming together once a week for a show where you're all facing one direction, listening and and you know to vocalists and listening to a you know a donkey talking for you know a few minutes. But hey, if God spoke through the through the mouth of a donkey once before, He can do it again, as Martin Luther would say, right? <laughs> But we have, you know, so so last last uh, last summer, David Runia. Do you guys remember David Runia when he came and spoke here last summer? Here, you're here. Yeah, there's some people here. So David Runia, my my good friend up at C3, or I guess yeah, up at C3, up Jackrabbit there, uh, or down at South, <laughs> down at C3, um, came and he he preached on the um, on what God calls great. Actually, it's about this very this very topic. This is kind of a repetition of what um, what, uh, what what Jesus was talking about back in uh, Luke uh, earlier on last summer. Um, and so, basically, like this very concept of kingdom values in what and who we value. What are the kingdom values? What does God value? What does Jesus say is the kingdom of God? values we call good we call great what god calls great or who god calls great and that's the very point here and actually if we if we go over here to to john john chapter 13 he talks about this in 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 chapter in verses uh 12 through 17 he says when so jesus has just washed their washed their feet had an argument with peter (laughs) and sat back down when so it says this when jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. 
So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you, what? Think about them, memorize them. No, do them. If you do them. So this, so this whole concept is, is right in the background because Jesus does this toward the beginning of the time in the, in the upper room. And then they do the whole Passover Seder, like we, did, like we talked about on Wednesday. And now we're, we're kind of post-Passover Seder and you know, at the, at, toward the end of it. Like may, this may have been the discussion around dinner, maybe before he finished it, but, but most likely this is after the Seder has concluded after they've sung, sung the hymn, the Hillel, that we just sung kind of this morning with forever, right? Uh, his love endures forever. His love endures forever. That's the Hillel in Psalm uh, 113 through uh, 118, which they would be singing on their way up to Jerusalem. As they were going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, these were the songs, these were the kinds of songs that they were singing because it was a celebration and we just got to join with that celebration, singing a Hillel forever. Your love endures forever. Actually, the, the Bible says your steadfast love endures forever. Your chesed or your agape. And God is chesed or agape. So you exist forever. You endure forever. Your love for us, your connection, your steadfast devotion to us as your people endures forever. And now Jesus is asking them this question. Where is your devotion? Where is your love? Where is your heart with this? As the, as the good old, you know, DC talks, old DC talk song said, you know, love is a verb. Right? <laughs> Anyone, you know, the old DC talk song, love is a verb? Yeah! I got some. That's right. Sup? Oh, peeps. <laughs> but here in, in this passage, we see this whole, this whole f- mindset shift. Because for them, in their culture, leadership and greatness was all about who had the power, who had the wealth, who had the say, who had the opinion, who everyone else followed. But what did Jesus say? He said, in, the, in this world, even the Gentiles, the kings of the Gentiles, have this whole mindset of leadership. But Jesus said, this shouldn't be the way for you. Don't emulate the world's values. Let me just say it in these words. If what America calls great, call foolish. Reject the American hierarchy system. Reject all things that say that these people are, are better than you because they've got power and authority and say. That is a, I'll just say it, it is a demonic system. It is the ways of this World And Jesus is like, that way must not be among you. In fact, leadership is supposed to be from the bottom, on your knees, serving the good of, of others. You want to be great? You want to be considered great in God's kingdom? Don't try to seek the power. Don't try to seek the authority or the say. Serve. And serve well. He said, I came to serve. And a servant... A servant was like someone flipping fry, you know, flipping burgers at McDonald's. 
in our culture. Or someone who, you know, a trash man. I'm trying to think of the, like the lowest job in our society today. Or is there a lowest job in our society today? I don't know. Toilet. Cleaning toilets. You know, janitor. There you go. Someone behind the scenes. Sometimes you may not even know his name or her name, right? But they do the dirty jobs that you don't want to do. Go, go look at the, the, the show, Dirty Jobs. Right? Go watch a few seasons. Be that. Okay, not in an actual work environment, but be that to the church. Are you coming in and cleaning the toilets? No. It's fine. I got all the stuff for you if you want to come and clean the toilets. Serving is about love. Because oftentimes, even serving can become this, oh, I'm greater. I look at how much, look, I'm cleaning this toilet. Everyone needs to know, oh yeah, this one time this last week when I was cleaning your all's toilets, um, right? It can kind of become this, this badge of honor type thing, right? Like, I did these things, look at me, venerate me, oh yes, love me. But, but where it, if it comes out of a heart of what? Love. I'm devoted to the church and I just do it because I love them. You do it for your family. You clean the toilets, hopefully. <laughs> After a couple weeks, uh, you clean the shower. You 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 cl- you wash the dishes for your spouse or your family or your your friends and your family. Yeah. Oh yeah. Those, I love the line from what was it, Night and Day, or I think it was or, or uh, what is it called, Amberlynn, the one with uh, Hugh Jackman. <laughs> it's like this guy comes, you know, from like early, like, 16th century or something like that, and he's like this prince, and he comes into modern-day culture, and the guy's like, no, 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 wait, 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 don't don't press the button on the dishwasher yet. Wait. And so the, the girl walks around the corner. Oh, wait, now. Because if she doesn't see it, she doesn't know that you, that you did it. <laughs> King Leopold, there you go. Kate and Leopold, yeah. But it's not about being recognized. It's not about saying, look at what I did. It's simply doing it out of a heart of love. Doing all the things that we do out of a heart of love. And that point took a lot longer to talk about. Moving on. <laughs> Serving is about loving others before they are lovable and deserving of love or hate. Even in the midst of them deserving hate, you love. The greatest in the world are those with, who wield the power and influence over others. But the kingdom consists of the greatest being those who love and love well. Not those who have the power and know everything. So let's talk about that a little bit. So at the church, the church is supposed to be a place that cultivates a space for growth, not indoctrination. So we're going to talk. Let's talk about knowledge here for for a minute, and our and our and the way that we as the church operate in the knowledge of God, the Scripture, studying the Bible, studying our faith itself. We often associate being a mature Christian with knowledge of the Bible. Right. However, I would pose that we're not even good at that. <laughs> um, we don't often choose a church based on their ability to challenge us to think. We often choose churches based upon our agreement with what's being taught. If we like their theology, we stay. If we don't, we leave and find another church to suit our needs. Second Timothy 4.3 has come to pass in our 21st century church. It says, For the time is coming when they will no longer listen to and respond to the healing words of truth because they will become selfish and proud. They will seek out teachers with soothing words that line up with their desires, saying just what they want to hear. 
And this is not just these prosperity preachers that everyone likes to accuse. This can even be places that tout, we are a Bible-preaching church because they preach religion and it feels good. Let me say that again. Many times it can become the very religious churches that tout religion and claim the Bible. And yet they're not teaching the Scripture faithfully. They teach it plainly, but as I like to say, there is no such thing as as a plain, literal reading of Scripture. That's a terrible way to read the Bible. Awful way to read the Bible. We have to understand the context. We have to look at the references and the cross-references. We have to seek for understanding, not just knowledge. Because what? Knowledge, what? Puffs up. But love builds up. In essence, this is indoctrination. Both on the prosperity gospel side and on the very religious side. It's both indoctrination. Versus the church, the local church, being a place of actual learning, which includes dialogue, discussion, disagreement, but it is in a place that embodies unity. A place where we can feel free to come with people that we vehemently disagree with, and yet we stay because we know that we're loved. We know that they will that that person with, that we vehemently disagree with will give us the shirt off their back. Will come and give us a ride at two in the morning if we have an emergency and need to rush to the hospital. We know that they've got our backs because they love and love well. The church is a place that needs to be where we love and love well. I posted something on Facebook a couple weeks ago, and I think it, it really fits in this in this setting. So this is a, comp- a um, going on this, this, this topic of cultivating a space for growth, not indoctrination. So I talk about the difference between teaching, true teaching, and indoctrination. There's an inter- interesting perspective that I found on the Internet, because the you know, Internet's the great place to find all this sorts of stuff, um, to consider when we think about the church and how we treat our faith. So here, here's what the post said. Indoctrination tells you what to think. Education teaches you how to think. Indoctrination tells you not to challenge what you are told. Education gives you tools for examining everything you are told with a critical eye. Indoctrination tells you not to question. Education teaches you how to question. Indoctrination tells you to believe authority figures and celebrities. Education tells you to believe evidence. Indoctrination teaches you the matter is settled. Education teaches you that new evidence may may upset existing paradigms. Indoctrination says, because I said so. Education says, this is what the available evidence suggests, and this is why. It's interesting how people look at the church and the methods of our faith. I've read different articles. I read a bunch of different articles this same day that I posted this and post that people's perspectives on the difference. And it's very striking how all of them, every single one, not a single one of them failed, to set faith and religion squarely in the place of indoctrination. At the same time, I'm continually amazed with how many people who are deconstructing their faith feel like the faith tradition they grew up in did indeed indoctrinate them. They weren't allowed to question the doctrines of pastors or priests. They weren't allowed to have discussions and wrestle with the faith claims. 
They weren't shown the mountains of evidence in order to form their own beliefs. They were told to sit down, shut up, listen, and obey. But the local church ought to be a place to question and wrestle, to teach and instruct, to cultivate grace-filled space, spaces um, for, people, for people who hold differing thoughts and can embrace each other at the end of a good discussion rather than abandon relationships, discard and discredit others because they differ in opinions. May the reputation of local churches shift as local churches shift their culture to be one of dialogue and solid, in, and solid instruction. May they cultivate spaces that allow for disagreement, dialogue and differences in an atmosphere of love and acceptance. But a place that won't simply accept anything and everything, but will actually be able to challenge and push people to be able to defend their beliefs with facts and evidence instead of simply basing their faith on feelings and desires for their beliefs to be true. The church needs to be a place for critical and reasonable faith, a place of doctrinal education and formation, and not a place of uncritical indoctrination and dogmatic coercion. We need a space for more teaching and cultivating of biblical literacy. We do. And I recognize that here at Shift Church. We, I need, we need that space to where we can learn how to study the Bible. I can teach you a little bit more in the depths of the nerdy stuff that I can't really go into that I really, 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 really want to go into. There's like, in my research, there's like mountains of research that I do every single week for this. I, I spend about 20 hours preparing for my sermon nerding out. I'm like, oh, it would be great. Oh, this would be great. Oh, what rabbit trail should I take? Which is why sometimes my sermons take about an hour, which I'm trying to do better on. So I've got four minutes until it's 30 minutes in. So <laughs> I've got three more slides. But, <laughs> but, but I want to develop that. I want, you know, I'll give more details, but I'm in, I'm in the process of developing this, the, this thing. Um, <clears throat> a, some, a way to give... Um, to to cultivate biblical literacy among us as the church. So it's not just a thus saith Alan type thing. You come into the church and like, well, thus saith Alan. He said it. I believe it. That settles it. Right? Well, no, a place for you to challenge. A place for me to, to, for us to have dialogue about certain beliefs and certain structures. Now, I know there's probably a lot of questions about 8070. You know, and the whole, yeah, that. <laughs> um, but it will be more of a discussion and a dialogue. Nay, I even say debate. I like debating. It's like, it's like scrapping, let's, let's scrap. You know, that, that kind of teaching. Because we need to not simply know our faith, but to understand our faith. For the, as, my, as my friend, uh, Pastor David Fairchild in Seattle would say, the, the information needs to drop from the brain to the heart. It's not just emotions that's the heart. The heart is what drives the life. The drive is the, is the, 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 uh, the, the center of, of the life that, that we live out of. Yes, we think mentally about certain things, but when certain thoughts make their way into our heart and we, we understand them and we believe them, that's what we live. That's how we, that's how we process. So the biblical knowledge needs to get from here to here to here. Right? and figure out how to engage our faith personally. We need to be able to read our Bibles to understand, not simply read it and take it at face value. Like I said, 
you know, literal type thing. Because uh, <clears throat> like I said a couple weeks ago, what is the number one character in the Bible that doesn't exist? That everyone thinks is, exists in the Bible. It's, never in, it's not in the Bible. Do you remember this from a couple weeks ago? The innkeeper. There's no such thing in the Bible as an innkeeper. It never says the innkeeper said there's no room. Remember it said, we talked about the inn being that upper room that where the place people lived on the upper floor. Right? And that's what it was talking about, the kataluma. There was no space in the living quarters. There was, there was no inn or hotel. Therefore, there was no innkeeper. So that's what I'm saying. Like We have to read it with this thought to understand the Bible, not just simply read it at face value. And learn how to interpret it and learn how to do um, word studies so that we don't get confused by things like Antichrist and rapture. But learn, you know, in the true meaning, we need to learn the true meaning for certain things like the sacrificial system. Reading Jesus as an overlap of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and, you know, and then and versus the only the New Covenant um, and reading Paul as New Covenant. So understanding the context of Scripture based upon where it was written, when it was written, who it was written to, where it was written from. What was the state of the person writing it? We need to understand the Bible, not just know the Bible. Right? Okay. Then you beat that horse. <laughs> Most importantly, here's where, here's where the rubber meets the road. We need to understand not just how to know and understand the Bible, but how to embody our faith in our faith, commu- in our faith community. Not simply a mental reasoning and faith, in faith individualistically. Um, it's not simply about doing. And here, I want to make sure that I make, I make a very subtle difference here because there's a lot of nuance here. Um, it's not simply about doing as if it were to gain favor, salvation, or to maintain our individual relationship with God. It's about flourishing the body of Christ and furthering the kingdom of God on this earth and extending an invitation to others to join this flourishing body of saints. As, as, as Jesus said in John 13, he said, I give you a new command. What? Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is where we get to that love is a verb thing. Love itself is an actionable word. It is a doing. It is a practice it is an outflowing of an identity. When your identity is love because you've encountered the love of the Father, you do it. It, it manifests itself through you. A life that is unloving is a life that hasn't encountered God. Or is not in continual communion with God. For God, your earthly family, and for the love of the family of faith. And here's where we see this this binding of these two, of these two different sections because they they, they kind of seem a little different, like they could have been split up, and a lot of times they are. But I've, I think that they are one continuous thought pattern, talking about who's the greatest. Because interesting that like that's why I included verse 30, you know 23. They began to argue who was going to betray Jesus. And then out of that, our conversation, that argument about who was going to betray Jesus, came this, who's the greatest? Who's the worst? Who's the best? And so Jesus is, is changing the subject, is, is, is steering the conversation um, here about, about what's going on. 
Um, and he says that God gives grace to the humble. That's kind of, I, I believe, the connecting pattern here. God gives grace, what, to the humble. Those who are willing to love, those who are willing to serve, those who are willing to humble themselves. Because again, it's not about gaining positions of power and authority and wealth. It's about denying yourself. It's about dying to yourself. It's about carrying your cross, which for them was a very vivid picture. Right? <laughs> Jesus embodies his teaching in this first section with the, his interaction with Peter and the foretelling of Peter's denials in the second. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more, a little bit more next week about more about this, um, but this sets the context. Jesus is telling them that they're going to face the temptation to think that the revolution has started. That's what he's talking about here. He's, he has asked you, and actually the word there has actually given, been given permission to sift you like wheat. Now, what does sifting wheat look like? You take it, you beat the crap out of it to get all the seeds to, to release. So Satan has gotten permission from God to do what he did to Job to the church. Because that was the church at that point. To all the disciples. In the upper room, remember, there were about 120 disciples, not just the 12. There were over 120 disciples in this upper room. And Satan has been granted what God granted to Satan for Job. But the temptation for them, the sifting, if you will, the sifting, the, the beating the snot out of you is to think that the, the revolution, the revolution is now. We got to fight. Take up arms. That's their temptation. And that's why Jesus actually is like stressed out and bleed and like sweats blood. Because here's, here's the thing is that they think that they're supposed to rise up and create the revolution just like all the other revolutions all the other rebellions and fight, which Peter would try to do. She's like, she's like, cut the crap out. They should not. It's not the way of the kingdom. It's not love. That's the desire to seek power and seek wealth and to seek honor, right? Is to fight and be the victorious ones. And that's the temptation that we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks. Jesus has to die by crucifixion. And this right the, the, in the garden, which we're going to talk about next week, is the greatest obstacle between him and dying on the cross. If he can make it through being arrested without his disciples doing something stupid, he can do and fulfill his prophetic ministry. Jesus has to die by crucifixion, not a bloodbath in a garden. Jesus' focus here, however, is on Peter. Jesus didn't wait. Here, think about this. Jesus didn't wait for Peter to apologize for denying him. Right at the beginning, he's like, hey, Peter, guess what? You're going to do this. And don't worry, I've already forgiven you. It's okay. We're good. But he says, you know, what he says, um, and when you have turned back, your heart may not fail. But when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus didn't wait for Peter to apologize. He didn't even wait for Peter to sin before he already forgave him. 
Jesus placed himself into a posture of peace and grace before the sin was ever done. Jesus chose not to hold even a sin he knew Peter would do against him. And when Peter did come around after, after the resurrection, Jesus lavished love and power and grace onto him. Boldness. The true power that Peter was supposed to pursue, which was the power to proclaim the gospel. This last section is Jesus embodying his teaching. You're going to do this, but I've already decided to give you grace. And when you experience this radical grace, turn and strengthen the rest of the family because they're going to be distraught too. They're going to flee as well. It's it's not just you abandoning me, Peter. It's going to be everyone. As, As the Old Testament said, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That's exactly what's going to happen in the garden. If they choose... If they you know, choose to withstand the temptation. And here's the thing. To, for that to happen, they had to abandon Jesus. To fulfill scripture, the disciples had to flee. In order for Jesus to be crucified, the disciples had to run away. For the church to survive, they had to scatter. This was Jesus fulfilling prophecy. This was the, the disciples fulfilling prophecy. After the resurrection, he said, I will give you what power, my Holy Spirit, the power of my Holy Spirit in you, upon you, baptizing you, which means like a sponge, like dipping you into the water and it covering you and saturating every fiber of your being. That is what the Holy Spirit does to us. And when that happens, all the things that I've been telling you to do and how to live and how to engage with each other as a family of God, they'll make sense. And now, then you'll have the Holy Spirit and truly know how to live it and truly know how to manifest it, truly know how to put it into practice. And this is what Paul's point was in, in Romans chapter 12. And I love this, this verse here, and you'll, and you'll, you'll see it here. Because the New Testament letter, letters have a lot to say about the way in which we are to live out our faith. Um, and it is mostly about interrelationships between people, specifically between those in the church and God and the church in one another, and also how to relate to the culture around us relationally. Um, but this is what he talks about in Romans chapter 12. And this is verses, I love this, this translation from the Passion about these couple verses. He said, Be devoted to tenderly loving your fellow believers as members of one family. Try to outdo yourselves in respect and honor of one another. But I want to read this, the, the, the 9 through 16 in, in the, the Christian Standard Version. It says this, Let love be without hypocrisy. And I, I want to stop here. Imagine this is Paul talking to you. Paul is speaking to you. Us. Shift church. He's speaking to us today. This is how we are supposed to be as his church, as God's you know, kingdom on earth. Let your love shift church be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Don't lack diligence in zeal, but be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. 
Listen to these words, you guys. Listen. Just let these words wash over you. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. That means inviting people over to your homes. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. And if possible, I know it's hard. I know what you're living in. As far as it depends on you, though, live at peace with everyone. Friends, don't avenge yourselves. Don't seek justice. Don't seek your own justice. Don't seek fairness. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. (laughs) For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Now that sounds fun, doesn't it? Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. That is one of the many passages all over the New Testament that tells us how to be with one another. How to honor one another. How to relate to one another. How to practice these things. And here's the, here's the kicker. We can't do these things unless we get together. You can't love someone if you never see them. Long distance relationships suck because of that very thing. <laughs> they don't make the heart grow fonder. Distance does not make the heart grow fonder. The Bible even says, don't forsake the meeting together. So how do we do this? How do we seek these things? How do we live these things out? Here are four ways to serve one another. I'll wrap up with this. Show up. Speak up. Grow up. And step up. Show up. We cannot minister to one another if we don't devote ourselves to physically, emotionally, mentally, and being spiritually present with each other speak up we got to speak love and encouragement into each other's lives and allow others to speak into ours into yours right we have to grow up engaging in our relationship with god so that we can bring a better and healthier more mature and steady presence to one another and engaging with one another in relationship with each other so that we can bring a healthier, more mature and steady faith in our relationship with God. It's both and. Our personal relationship with God benefits the one another. And the one another benefits our relationship with God. Both and. We cannot have one without the other. They're two wings to the same bird. And we need to step up. Church isn't about you. I love Rick Warren's book, you know, The Purpose Driven Life. You're like, I'm thinking of two. The very first words of The Purpose Driven Life are this. It's not about you. A purpose-driven, fulfilling life in this world is not about you. It's about Christ, His glory, and the one another, and others. And we, we talk about the with them, you know, the what's in it for me. Marketing talks about this. You know, people talk about, you know, I have to give someone you know, something of value in order to get their buy-in. Right? 
But here, I mean, so we, we try to do that in, in, a, in a way that's like, that's inviting, that says, this is a place I want to come and stay, with the relationship, the connection, and everything that we are on a Sunday morning is, is meant to be inviting, right? This is the lobby of the house. You know, our act groups and other places are the living room. And then the other, you know, the, you know, the, the one-on-one relationship is the porch, you know, where you can sit, sit down and just, you know, hang out and be with someone. So we, we want to transition from the with them, what's in it for me, to the what's in it for others. What's in, what's in it for each other? From consumers to cultivators. Living the way, truth, and life of the kingdom requires us to get out of our comfort zone, to stop listening to the lies of the world, and to submit and serve one another. So, how do we do this? How do we, where, where do we do this? Well, we, I love that word cultivate. I've, just, I've used that word like several times a day. Cultivate relational opportunities. We need to cultivate relational opportunities. Write down a few of these. Maybe write down a few for, your, for yourself. Think about these things. Providing a space or a place for people to show up, speak up, grow up, and step up. We provide a space for it. Now, there could be a couple of things, a couple of different things. Attend an act group. We've got three, like we talked about this week. We've got the Theology Pub on Wednesday. We've got Furs and Fins on Tuesday. We've got Bloom on Saturday. Attend an act group. Maybe if none of those are, are you know, work schedule-wise or interest-wise, start one. Is there something that interests you Then you want to get people together? Whether, whether it be like a coffee shop or your home or um, at the park or something. Like, what kind of thing would you show up for? Uh, maybe start, you know, being willing to start one. And here's, if you're a part of one, help your catalyst, that's your leader, grow and build the at group. You know, we don't have all the answers. Josh, myself, and Amberlynn don't have all the answers to how to grow our at groups. Number one thing, honestly, to build an at group, just invite people. Text them, call them, knock on their door, bust it down, be like, hey, you're coming, get in the car. Connect with a family or two and do a weekly or bi-weekly or monthly family dinner. It doesn't have to be like an official, like, you know, at, you know, at group shift church meeting. Maybe just connect with a couple other families like once or twice a month and have a, a you know, as we call, like to call it, family dinner, like friends and families shoved together. The most important thing is to create that space, to create that place. Connecting with, the other, with others. Invite others on a hike or a backpacking trip or a camping trip. Fishing trip. Golfing. <laughs> I love this. I saw this post on, on Instagram this last week. Um, and I want to kind of wrap it up with this. How to make friends in your 30s and 40s. Of course, this actually just has really, for any stage of our life, really. You know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s. You know, here we go. Number one, make it a priority and decide to do it. <laughs> Simple. Really, we don't need anything else besides that one. <laughs> Number two, look for shared experiences. Find people that you have shared interests with. Oh, you like to go fishing. Oh, I like to go fishing. Oh, you like to hang out and, and do this or that. Oh, you like to go, go restaurant hopping. You're, you're a foodie like me. Let's get together and go try a restaurant every couple weeks, right? Save up some money and go, go splurge at the Gallatin River Ranch. Okay, might have to save for a couple months. <laughs> 
Go first and extend hospitality. Remember, love first. Take the initiative. Don't wait for others to do that for you. Because they're probably waiting for you. So take the step. Be it, take the initiative. The great eye of initiative. Intentional. Intentionality. Go first and extend hospitality. Number four, say yes to invitations and adventures. So when you are asked, oh, I'm sorry, I've got a, <coughs> I've got a, <coughs> I've got a cough. I'm sorry. <coughs> I'm sick. Say yes to adventures. Say yes to invitations to go and do things. Get out of your house and go where other people are. Number six, find people to serve. Maybe that's what you do. You like serving people. You want to go and and minister with Love, Inc. Go do it together. Finding opportunities to do things together, creating the space and the place to come together in order to show up, speak up, grow up, and step up. Love first. Serve one another. Live the kingdom values in our lives today. In a world that says, isolate yourself. Refuse to obey that lie. That is not the way to flourishing. The way to flourishing is connection. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning and our time together. Lord, I pray that you would spur within us, stir within our hearts, God. Stir within us our very spirits, Lord, a desire to connect with you first and foremost more often to spend time in prayer, spend time in your word, spend time just being willing to sit down in front of you and be still and say nothing and just be in your presence. Because oftentimes I think we, we're, we're so hard-pressed hard to do that even ourselves in this culture. We're so busy. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to engage. Engage with you on a daily basis in some way, shape, or form to recognize your presence with us. And Lord, to pursue the one another because it is your very heart. But that's how the world around us are going to know that we are your disciples is if we love one another and if we have compassion, if we love and serve and engage with relationship with one another, Lord. And Lord, I pray that every time we do get together, that God, you would just empower every single minute, every single second of that time together. That it be a place of connection, a place of encouragement, a place of uplifting, so that as it says in Ephesians 4, that we as Shift Church would build one another up in love. That we would identify how to minister one to another. Learn how, Lord, Je- Lord Jesus, to, to cultivate life in your people, Lord, amongst your people, in all of our families, from cradle to the grave, Lord. All of us are integral members and ministers of the kingdom of God. And I pray that you'd show us how we are called to minister. Lord, bless us this morning and lead us. For in Jesus' name I pray all these things. Amen.